Hey, GeoTrekkers. When we think of extreme weather, we often think of tornadoes, hurricanes, other things that are really visually captivating. But one thing we often do not think about is air quality. Well, this summer, wildfires through Canada and a lot of urban and industrial pollution have made air quality a major story on the news. Hey, everyone, I'm Dr. Hal, host of the GeoTrek podcast. This week is all about air quality on the GeoTrek podcast as we go deep, learn more about what causes different types of air pollution, how you can monitor it and what you can do to make yourself prepared for this and uh, to take action to mitigate the effects of air quality on you and your family. Our guest, you're going to love him. He's David Liu, co-founder and CEO of the Clarity Movement, an environmental tech startup focused on changing how we understand the environment by deploying dense networks for real-time air quality monitoring. Prior to starting Clarity, David was a key leader in the University of California's fossil fuel divestment campaign and worked alongside the Arctic campaign director at Greenpeace. Fueled by his everlasting passion for improving our environment, namely mitigating climate change, David believes in using data-driven approaches to address the issues arising in global environmental crisis. David earned his BS in atmospheric science from the University of California, Berkeley. And I think you're really going to love all the insights he has to share on this topic. He's an expert in the field. He and the Clarity Movement worldwide are really changing the landscape for how we monitor, detect, and take action to protect ourselves against poor air quality and air pollution. It's going to be a great episode here on the GeoTrek podcast. If you're new to GeoTrek, we explore the world for stories about extreme weather and natural disasters not covered by the mainstream media. We're really looking to do three things. Number one, understand the physical processes behind extreme weather and natural disasters understand their impacts on society, and then lastly, understand what we can do to mitigate the losses of these extreme events to make ourselves, our communities, and our families more resilient to anything that Mother Nature can throw at us. Hey, a quick housekeeping note here. In the conversation, at some point, David Liu and I talk about ozone pollution. Just a housekeeping note, don't confuse that with the ozone layer. So the ozone layer is in the stratosphere. It's higher up in the atmosphere, and it's a good thing. It's a healthy thing. The ozone layer in the stratosphere helps to block out harmful UV light and protects people from skin cancer and other kinds of problems that can come from getting too much sunlight. Ozone pollution, however, that's in the lower levels of the atmosphere, the troposphere, where we live and and where we work and where we breathe. Ozone pollution often happens in urban settings where we have a lot of cars and industrial exhaust. Uh, When that interacts with sunlight and we have light winds, especially in the summertime, we get what's called ozone pollution. This is harmful and not healthy for people, and it's, it's a big concern. But that's in contrast with the ozone layer in the stratosphere. They're two very different things, and we'll talk about that on the podcast. Well, hey, without any further introduction, let's get into this podcast with David Liu, where it's all about air quality. David, thank you so much for taking time to come on the GeoTrek podcast. Thanks for having me. David, a lot of people now are talking about air quality. This summer, it's been in the news a lot with the forest fires in Canada producing a lot of smoke. There's also been a lot of urban pollution from ozone. Um, this is something that's come up a lot in the news. Could you tell us a little bit about you know the importance of air quality as far as something that people should be aware about? Yeah, I mean, <clears throat> air pollution is probably one of the most pressing environmental crises that we are facing nowadays. Um, it's causing a, roughly around 7 million premature deaths every year worldwide. Um, and that's a staggering figure, um, right? Um, in comparison to COVID, 
it has produced 7 million deaths throughout the whole duration of the pandemic versus air pollution, 7 million every year. Just let it sink in, right? So this is a really pressing issues and it's getting worse because of the climate change. Um, evidently, the smoke we are seeing in the Midwest and the East Coast is evidence of that. Yeah, David, the smoke in places like Chicago and Detroit, New York, Washington, coming all the way from Canada, that surprised a lot of people who did not think that wildfire smoke can travel that far. How far can smoke travel if it's coming from wildfires? Yeah, so um, in this kind of wildfire events, you have the heat that's pumping the smoke to really high in the altitude, uh, in the atmosphere. So that's enable the smoke travel very far, especially for the particles that's what we call PM2.5 or particular matter smaller than 2.5 microns. So these are the particles that's really harmful for us um, because it actually can penetrate to your lung and into your bloodstream. Um, And it's small enough that it doesn't um, settle to the ground quick enough. So what we usually see, yeah, like sometimes the PM, like PM 2.5 can travel around the globe. Like, you know, there could be a sandstorm in Sahara and then somehow went all the way around the globe and impacting Europe. <laughs> um, and that's just how crazy sometimes it is. Yeah. David, let's talk a little bit about the physics of these particular matters. So once we have particles in the atmosphere, that's called an aerosol. What are the different kinds of aerosol that are that can be out there? Yeah, I mean, so PM25 is just a classification of aerosols of the size, right? So um, it doesn't technically talk about what's the composition of the particles. And for the composition of the particle, it can, um, you know, um, it can be a lot. It can come in from droplets, uh, you know, from the uh, sea breeze to during the wildfire burning, you will see a lot of the uh, uh, black carbon, um, and that that's result from the biomass burning. Uh, you will see um, in urban air pollutions, you have a lot of secondary uh, react like secondary uh, generated uh, air pollutions that are from photochemical reactions. Um, so for that, you have also black carbon, but also a lot of sulfur compounds um, and so on. So in terms of the uh, the compensation of such, it can be, you know, hundreds to thousands, you know, if we really want to go into the speciation, you know, um, in addition to this, there's dust, there's heavy metals, there's like literally just sand. And <laughs> so, it's yeah. very, it really varies. Yeah. David, it sounds like you're saying some of these aerosols are natural, like maybe fires, volcanoes, um, d- dust from the Sahara Desert, sea salt, salt aerosol, but then some of them are also man-made pollutants as well. Absolutely. I mean, <clears throat> so um, when so we have a Clean Air Act in the U.S. passing roughly 1960s, and that's primarily targeting all these man-made air pollutions in the urban area. Um, So EPA back in the days actually took some uh, photograph of what the city looks like. And it looks like just like, you know, the couple of days ago in New York City or what we're seeing in Chicago. But the 
the difference is, is back then it was not caused by wildfire. It caused by all the man-made pollutions, right? So, um, you know, that's a lot of from the sulfur that we burned from the coal. Uh, there, back then, we don't really have a very strict emissions uh, standards for the power plant, for uh, industry, and for the cars. So, um, every nasty things you can imagine is there, and it's creating a lot of the haze that we're seeing back then. But then since the uh, Clean Air Act, we see a dramatic improvement of the man-made pollutions in the United States. I mean, it's nowhere close to be solved, but compared to what we see before, huge difference. Um, however, the re- most recently, I was started from West Coast, now impacting East Coast. There's a reverse of... Um, Air, uh, air quality improvements, mainly because of the wildfire. Yeah. Yeah. So some of these scenes that we're seeing out of urban areas with the haze and the, the smoke, the poor visibility, the pollution, you're saying before the Clean Air Act, we saw similar images, but instead yep. of from wildfires, it was often from urban pollution or from industrial pollution. Absolutely. I mean, even nowadays, if you go to country, um, unfortunately, like India, um, you will see similar episodes and they don't have wildfire like uh, that was not caused by the wildfire it's still caused by the urban pollution yeah yeah david a little bit more about you and your background how did you become interested in this area of research yeah so um i actually grew up in china so i first handed experienced a lot of uh, a bad air pollution episode back then um and i came to us uh, I studied uh, atmospheric science uh, from UC Berkeley. Yeah. Um, and I think during the study, uh, for me, I really just trying to find an impactful way to u- really using my, my knowledge um, and to do something positive to the society. I think that's um, um, probably one of the driving forces behind the creation of Clarity Movement. <laughs> Yeah, and like you said, this is such a big public health crisis and problem that people may not be thinking about. I'm excited to hear more about Clarity on this podcast and, and learn, you know, you're helping educate us about the problems of air pollution. And we'll, we'll be talking on this podcast as well, as well about, um, about some of these solutions that are out that. So um, when, when people start seeing, now we're hearing on the news a lot about hazardous air, uh, poor air quality, a lot this summer from the forest fires in Canada, but also we saw a lot of ur- um, urban ozone pollution in places like Dallas and Houston and and some of these um, places that had light wind speeds, a lot of traffic. Uh, when people see that there's compromised or lower air quality, what are some things that they should think about? I mean, uh, how should they maybe change their the way that they're living? <clears throat> yeah, so... <clears throat> I think, you know, we can go from one by one, right? So first on wildfire, unfortunately, this feel an individual can do to change that. Um, I think the best things we can do is really protecting yourself and protecting your families. When, when being out, wear a mask. I know it's controversial because of the COVID, but it's truly, it's just protecting your house, um, period, right? They, that kind of particles, they're not, good for you. Um, they can p- 
penetrate into your bloodstream, causing a lot of the health problems down the road. Um, you know, in the past decades, a lot of the research has been really focusing on what's the health impact of the urban air pollution on our house. There's actually still a lot of under understanding of what's the health impact of this wildfire smoke. I'm just saying they're not good. <laughs> so really protecting yourself when you're outside and then when you're inside, if you have an air purifier, turn it on. If you don't have, just turn your HVAC on fan, even if it's not cold or hot. Uh, it will filter somehow. Yeah, so that's what would be my first advice in terms of how individual can act. In terms of urban air pollution, especially around the ozone, the cause of that can be much more complicated uh, because ozone is not a primary air pollutant. Uh, what I meant is not because it's not important, primary air pollutant just means it's directly emitted from a pollution source. Um, ozone is a secondary air pollutant that is a result of a photochemical reactions. The photochemical reaction is basically when, when you have nitro dioxide plus total VOC, and then under the uh, uh, UV light, and that will result in ozone uh, in the low atmosphere level where we breathe. And the ozone in this level is really bad. It's not gonna. <laughs> it's not contributing to the ozone layer or anything. No, uh, that ground level ozone is really bad for you. And to the, I think when why we seeing so much high ozone level in Texas right now, uh, just really primary two reason. First, it's a hub of petrochemical like um, industry, so there are a lot of total VOC being emitted from, you know, from the drilling to, you know, refineries to, you know, all the process related to that. And the second is the heat, right? Like we are seeing uh, a records of high heat in the region. And for people who just learn a little bit about chemistry, <laughs> that promotes chemical reactions. And that's why we're seeing such a high ozone level in the regions right now. So David, when uh, you said it's a, a photochemical reaction, so even having hundreds of thousands of cars emitting emissions, when you, when you have summertime with high sun angles, the solar um, radiation is very intense. If you have that kind of situation with light winds, you don't get a lot of mixing. That, that's where you're setting up the stage for more ozone pollution. Absolutely. Is that correct? Yes, absolutely. And I think like another, like the car doesn't emit too much total VOC. Um, so total VOC is very important to form the ozone. And then total VOC can be, you know, a big source is from uh, petrochemical and another big source is actually from agriculture. Uh, that's just a natural release of a lot of vegetations and also, you know, cows <laughs> so uh, when so that's why like in seven king valley they have a big ozone problem and a particular problems uh, in california but because of the agriculture but in i would say houston that's mainly because petrochemicals yeah yeah interesting it sounds like uh, industrial areas and agricultural areas especially i would i would think there's more chance of ozone pollution in the summertime is that correct yes absolutely yeah 
probably because of the high sun angles. Um, David, when you mentioned wearing a mask, what should people think about? Is there a certain kind of mask, a certain standard to the mask as far as what it's going to filter? Yeah, it's actually pretty similar to the recommendation of COVID back then, because what you want to filter is a particular like PM2.5, essentially. So the N95 is probably the gold standards, but now you have KN94 and I know this, they're good. Surgical mask doesn't do a thing in terms of filtering out uh, the particular matters. That's, you know, PM2.5 in the air. It just doesn't do So anything. you really need a mask that's going to do some filtering to filter Absolutely. out those chem- those particles. David, when air quality becomes lower, we often hear advice for people to stay inside. In general, is there filtering and air conditioning and HVAC? I mean, how does that work as far as protecting people if they stay indoors? When you say air quality become lower, you mean air pollution yeah. at worst? W- yeah, when there's air, air pollution outside or when we yeah. have compromised air outside. Yeah. So in residential buildings, um, we do usually don't do intake from the outdoors, right? So essentially we circulating the air inside um, um, as a, a standard HVAC system. So for that, all the filtering is really happen in that, you know, the little filters that <laughs> they advise you to replace time by time. And um, the thing is, usually when we selecting that filter, we usually opt for efficiency. And so it means that, you know, we don't have, we choose the filter that doesn't create too much of pressure drop. Um, but by then, that means it's actually not filtering too much of fine particles. Um, so um, one advice could be f- trying to replace a filter that has higher grading um, in terms of you know what kind of particles it filter out. You don't have to go to uh, the HIPAA filter. Uh, that is essentially uh, the filter used in the air purifier um, and the hospital. Um, you can just use a higher grade one. Um, it will do something. It's not going to be best, but you know, uh, it's not going. It's going to help with something. Um, and again, air purifier. If you can get one, great. Um, just making sure that you cl- really close the window, close the doors. If you don't do that, it's you know yeah, useless. <laughs> yeah. And David, you know what's really interesting as we're following the weather reports and watching the news, it's amazing how the wind direction. Yeah. The wind intensity can really change where uh, the the higher air pollution concentration is. And Absolutely. this brings up the importance of monitoring. Yeah. And I wanted to get into, I, I know you and your team there at Clarity do a ton of work developing very high-end innovative products that help monitor air pollution. Could you tell us a little bit about Clarity and, and why it's so important to have quality monitoring for air quality? Yeah, so Clarity was funded to empower both public and the private sectors to um, fight against air pollution um, by offering this very scalable yet accurate air quality monitoring infrastructure. So the way we do it is, you know, we combine the state of our sensors, IOTs, and you know all the latest developments on data analysis, cloud, and we build into this turnkey solutions that's offering to. Uh, this organization, and it will provide them a professional-grade service of air monitoring. Yeah. David, I wanted to ask you, so with Clarity, you have different products that are different sizes, different 
um, as far as different parameters and different designs, right? What are the different type of products that you have? Yeah, so um, the most basic, uh, you know, um, hardware. So our service is we call sensing as a service. Uh, we actually have a hardware component, software component, and our expert support. So on the hardware side, we offer multiple options. Um, the base option is this Clarity Notes, uh, essentially. So it's a solar-powered uh, building connectivity device that work out of box uh, in 10 minutes uh, in over 120 countries. Uh, so it's really built with in mind to be very scalable, very easy to deploy. Um, so this is a big difference of uh, what the air quality monitoring used to be. Um, traditionally, the air quality monitoring is usually done by um, governments. That's, uh, you know, it's a size of a shipping container uh, and it costs a quarter million dollars to, uh, you know, to buy and purchase and a hundred thousand dollars a year to just simply maintaining it. Um, and, uh, you know, when, when talking about placement and deployment, you're probably talking about months um, uh, in the degree of months because you have to do the siting, powering and everything. This, we essentially trying to pack, you know, all the important things into this. Um, so this is not to replacing um, this, you know, reference grade instruments, but we are aiming to supplements uh, of what we can monitor. Uh, so this base node monitoring uh, key air pollutants such as PM 2.5 and uh, nitrous dioxide, NO2. And in addition, uh, this node is also a platform um, in which we can uh, using the accessory port on the side to connect additional add-on modules uh, to monitoring pollutants such as ozone, uh, as mentioned, and black carbon, uh, which is a huge uh, issues around the house and the climate. Uh, and we can also attach a wind module, an anemometer, to measure wind speed and the direction so that we can tell where the air pollution is coming from. That's really interesting. So you can add on to that device to collect meteorological and weather data to kind of help you understand the local environment there. Yeah, absolutely. And that's everything. It's powered and streamed through our nodes back to our clouds in which you can conduct a lot of interesting analysis. Yeah. David, it sounds like you're saying traditionally the only option for monitoring air quality was a very large, expensive um, unit that you'd get through the government. And I would imagine if you have something that takes many months to deploy, if it's very large and expensive, you probably cannot have that many of them out there. From what Absolutely. I know about air pollution, it can change greatly over small space, right? So you probably yes. want a more dense network, like which what you can do through Clarity now. Yes, that's absolutely our value proposition. It's essentially at a cost of one traditional air monitoring, you can deploy hundreds of our nodes across the city to get providing a much granular pictures of where uh, air pollution coming from. Traditionally, these reference monitors, they are roughly you know, tens or hundreds of miles apart uh, um, in a city and states. So it doesn't provide that granular picture as you needed. And we know that in situation like wildfire, you like, as you mentioned, is really dictated by wind patterns, speed, directions, and it can change like quite a lot, actually. Um, and that's, uh, um, therefore, you know, we see the benefits of this. Yeah. David, what are some examples where you've seen air quality change very 
greatly over small spaces and and how can these mon- how can monitoring that help people make better decisions yeah absolutely so um we actually have a deployment with um uh US second largest school district the our unified school district uh, in which we deployed 200 of our sensors across all their elementary school uh, in the district. Um, in the past, they had to rely on two to three reference monitor to basically, you know, uh, making decisions uh, around air pollution and the, how we can protect students' house. Now, instead of relying on that two and three, they can rely on on this 200 uh, of sensors to make the decision. And some of the, that uh, you know, variety, uh, variation we see is staggering. Uh, you know, not, we're not talking about air pollution coming from Wi-Fi, but just urban air pollution in LA. Unfortunately, nowadays, you still see some really bad air pollution days in LA because of the geographic kind of uh, features of the cities uh, and the remaining pollutants in the cities. Um, we sometimes see like basically the clean, uh, cleanest spot in the district compared to the most polluted spot in the district. We see a 10 times the difference of the pollution wow. level. That's the difference between good air quality and unhealthy air quality. So you're saying within the Los Angeles school district there, sometimes you could see a, t- a 10 times in difference as far as the amount of pollution from one site to another within the same school district. Absolutely. Yep. Wow, and that just shows how important it is to have localized information on what's happening at your school. I could imagine, I could picture schools using these types of decisions to determine if children are going to play outside at recess or things like that, right? Yes, that's precisely what they're using this for. Yeah, and you know, we've seen, especially with, with, say, flood forecasting, with other types of weather, if your data is coming from eight or nine miles away, it might be very different than what's happening at your spot. It sounds like with Clarity, you're able to get a, a much denser network of these monitors to know what's really happening in your neighborhood. Yeah, and I think not only just dense, but also where you're placing it is very, very important. Um, given that you know we really design in mind is that you can place it almost wherever you want. Um, so by placing it next to the road versus, let's say, on top of a building has a huge difference of air pollution as well. So that we can enable to measure where people is actually breathing and where people is exposed to air pollution compared to where it's convenient to put the air pollution monitor. Yeah, David, let's talk a little bit about this because a lot of our listeners are very enthusiastic about weather and climate. Sure. They're from professionals to hobbyists. So we know in general, when we deploy a weather station, we often want it, say, on the north side of a building. So we're avoiding direct sunlight, things like that. And the placement of a traditional weather station is very important. You want to uh, put it in a place where it's exposed to the wind, things like that. What about for putting out a, a clarity? air quality monitoring, it sounds like you're saying put it in a place that's representative of where people will be breathing the air. Um, also, should it be in the sun because it has a solar component? Should it? Are there things you should think about as far as the putting it in a place that gets more airflow or less airflow? I mean, what should we think about that? Yeah, it entirely depends on the user cases uh, of what people are trying to measure and the why they're trying to measure, right? So um, if you are you know, a city trying to understanding the the impact of traffic to uh, residents and pedestrians, then you probably want to put it 
next to the roads, not too far away from you know where the pollution sources. Um, compared to let's say if you are a city just trying to understand the general air pollution levels, you probably want to put it in what we call a background site, like that can be a top of a buildings or in the middle of a park, uh, in which you can see um, um, basically more like background information of the air pollution that is a way like kind of uh, strip away from this very uh, uh, spontaneous uh, emissions uh, from the like pollution sources. So it's, it really depends on why you're doing it, what you're trying to measure. Yeah. It, it sounds like it's really case by case of trying to say, why do we want these data and what kind of decisions do we make from yeah. that? So that's why when we developing our solution, we really keep that flexibility in mind, right? We don't want people yeah. to be restricted by uh, where I can access power and where I can access yeah. Wi-Fi, let's say. Yeah. David, let's say I worked for a large city and we wanted to monitor air pollution through the city. So could we have all of the monitors hooked into the same network? Can they map out uh, what the air quality is over space? I mean, wh how, what can we do with these data once we get them? Yeah, I mean, there is incredible things you can do once you have this uh, 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 dense amount of the data. Uh, what I usually tell people is, you know, this is an uh, infrastructure that can be used for multiple different reasons. So one of our biggest network uh, that's out there is actually a network we deploy with the city of London, uh, in which now I think between four to 500 of our clarity nodes was deployed throughout the cities. Um, and the way the city is using it, the community is using it, we see so much diverse user cases. Um, from uh, just simply informing the public about what's the your local air pollution is, right? Something not right next around your corner, you can tell like you know whether this is good for you, safe for you to go outside, exercise. So this public awareness piece is important. But then, but uh, sorry, I think the uh, <laughs> it froze a bit. Um, but then. Uh, the policymaker can use this data to really truly understand their policy impact. Uh, so one of the signature policy that uh, London has uh, uh, formed is this called uh, clean air, uh, outer low emission zone. So essentially it's a, a, a policy that restricts certain type of vehicle entering to the center of the city. So then we can really using this kind of air quality data to understand really what's the impact, right? Do we see a dramatic reduction of air pollutions or do we just simply see a redistribution of pollutions because traffic has to go somewhere? Does it just means that we are impacting some outer London places versus the you know, inner London places? That's interesting. So there's like an interface or an interaction between policy and what's actually happening in atmospheric science. You're saying clarity nodes can help to see, okay, how does a change in policy really affect the air that people breathe? Absolutely, that's essentially our <laughs> mission. Uh, I mean, we usually draw a metaphor, right? I think given the limited data we had before, a lot of times when we trying to think about the policy, 
to improve air quality, it's often like playing a chess without seeing the chessboard. So what we are doing is providing that clarity <laughs> um, what's actually the air quality is in the regions in real time. So and in the resolution that you need, uh, so that we can provide that chessboard for you to really understand what's the impact of your policy and how you can optimize it. Yeah. yeah, really, you're helping people make informed decisions, you know, and you're also helping society understand if we change maybe the amount of cars in an area, if we if we change some of our activities, how does that affect the atmosphere? Around yeah, us? absolutely. It can, it not only just, you know, you may think, oh, maybe this is only for the city. No, there's actually a lot a smaller organization can do. A lot of our user cases, for example, is down for the schools in which they want to measure the impact of, let's say if we change, like if we introduce no idling policies uh, for the school, how much reduction of air pollution we're seeing there, right? Does it actually make a difference? Oh, it does. Um, Or if we change, like, uh, uh, a road, you know, we're introducing bike lanes for a certain uh, small districts so or boroughs of the cities. How does that really change, and how does that really benefit in terms of uh, you know our um, um, our health? And I think that's one important pieces that openly lack in a lot of the city planning is we can't really quantify. So we can quantify the economical benefits and so on. But the one important piece is we usually miss is the health benefits uh, that coming from the reduction of air pollution. And you can't really quantify that health benefits unless you can quantify the reduction of air pollution. And that's where we can help. Yeah, this is really amazing because now all of a sudden we can do what we call trial and error, right? You can say, yeah. let's make let's make a no idling policy here. And it, if we had air pollution data in the old policy and air pollution data in the new policy, we can actually see uh, what we're doing and how that maybe makes a change. Yeah. And you don't have to spend a quarter million dollars to do it. (laughs) No, that's really cool. Uh, David, you mentioned London is, has thousands of these nodes across the city. What are some other international cases? I mean, you're in many different countries, right? What are some of the other international interests out there? Yeah. I mean, we see a tremendous use, like tremendous diversity of use of such technology. So in more developed countries, such as in US and in Europe, um, it's really about how to optimizing a lot of policies, how to addressing situation like environmental, like uh, environmental justice, inequality. That's what we are facing in the US quite a lot. But then when you go into developing country in which the air pollution is just a huge still huge issues and um and their infrastructure is lacking that's really provide them a lot of opportunity to leapfrog right so instead of let's say spending like two and a half million dollars to do deploy 10 monitoring station in a city to think about what you can do with half of the budget so maybe you do two to three reference grades monitoring station and deploy hundreds of our sensors in the cities, right? This, what we call like a monitoring 2.0 is what we envision for an ideal <laughs> scenario in which the city can really get a boost and benefit from the boost. And then we are seeing that in a lot of the developing countries we're working at. So in Southeast Asia, such as Philippines, Malaysia, Indonesia, uh, and in Africa, such as Ghana, 
Nigeria, in which you know, like the infrastructure was not there, but with this, it will provide them a tremendous opportunity to uh, to really frog a lot of the uh, older concept. Yeah. Well, and that's a good point. I, I had lived several years in Africa, and I saw in some nations where they haven't had things like the Clean Air Act. You get a lot, even just the amount of emissions behind your average truck or different vehicles on the road or factories. Uh, you could tell just by just by spending a day on the ground. Sometimes there's very heavy air pollution. It sounds like you're saying Clarity can help monitor and just help people really know what's going on with their air quality and help public health in those areas. Absolutely, we can help, and we are helping. We are deployed in Ghana, in Nigeria, uh, in uh, Uganda. That's you know. We are there. <laughs> David, do you have a count on how many different countries are using the Clarity product? Yes, we actually have deployed in more than, I would say, 70 countries. The exact number is changing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, that it just shows that it's a, it's a quality product that's doing good science. But like you said, it's small, it's mobile, and it's also affordable that, that people can get more of these monitors out there. Yeah, absolutely. That's essentially our goal. Yeah. David, do you have any last take-home messages for our listeners? Any any last you know um, things that you'd like to share that maybe the most important thing that people should be thinking about in relation to air quality? Yeah, I think you know uh, I would like people to treating this kind of thinking about uh, the air pollution episode we're seeing in the Midwest and the East Coast really as a canary um, um, uh, bell in the cold mine in which this is the alarm of the climate change, right? Um, you, uh, I think a lot of us may think climate change, even still now in the US, it's a very diverse topics. You know, we, we have a very polarized, polarized view and a very political size, but come on, um, no matter what's your political standing, we are breathing the same air and and from what we're seeing they're not getting better right and this is undeniable and i really want to urge everyone to yeah really seeing this uh you know really me- meeting this reality and accept this reality we really need to act um in order to yeah like yeah confront this crisis. David, you know, something I found really interesting this summer with the Canadian fires is that a lot of the places that people expect to see air pollution, maybe large cities like Los Angeles, Houston, uh, New York, uh, you know, those are the places where people may expect to have reduced air quality. With the Canadian fires, a lot of this smoke and everything, it's coming into places like the Midwest, the Great Lakes, places like the Upper Peninsula of Michigan. People always expect very clean air quality there. And in the latest maps, it shows it's been very unhealthy. So it it almost shows it doesn't matter where you are, air quality can become an issue, especially with things like like raging wildfires. Yeah. I mean, unfortunately, with the, the, the reality we're having, wildfire will be coming a pretty frequent, you know, natural disaster that we're facing. Obviously, there's a lot we can do in terms of forest management and so on to improving that. But, well, you will get in this hotter and hotter season and it's not going to get better. David, how can people find you online or how can they learn more about Clarity? Yeah, 
but you can simply go to clarity.io. Uh, that's our website. Um, yeah, uh, I, <laughs> I'm not big on social medias, but uh, uh, you can find me on LinkedIn or Twitter. Yeah. Well, David, the work you and your team are doing, it's, it's very important. Like you said, this is a public health crisis that's affecting millions of people a year. Air is just something that many of us take for granted, but we've seen, especially in recent times, air quality can become a huge public health problem. And I just want to congratulate you and your team for doing a great job with getting these air monitors out there. And we're looking forward to following Clarity online and, and seeing the latest uh, products that you're innovating. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thanks for taking time to come on the podcast. Bye. David, thank you so much for taking time to come on the GeoTrek podcast. You shared a lot of really amazing insights with us that have a big impact. A few of the big take-home messages I got from this podcast, I couldn't believe it when David said that there are 7 million premature deaths annually around the world because of air pollution and poor air quality. 7 million deaths per year. If there's a hurricane impact with more than 100 deaths, it becomes an enormous story. It's very high profile. He's talking about 7 million deaths per year. That's just really shocking, I think, because a lot of the really high profile images and videos and and things that we see on social media and on the mainstream media relate with uh, tornadoes, hurricanes, a lot of the things that are very photogenic. Uh, If there's a photogenic tornado tearing up someone's farm in Kansas, that's going to be going crazy and viral on the internet, but it might directly only impact a few dozen people. What David's talking about here is the premature death of 7 million people per year. And a lot of that isn't really photogenic. I mean, we've seen some images now of the haze and the orange skies in places like Washington and New York over the last several weeks to months. But a lot of times air pollution kind of goes invisible. If a a community lives in the shadow of an industrial facility, for example, a lot of that air pollution may be detected by a clarity uh, monitor, a clarity node, but it's not going to be really photographed. It's not really going to be spreading around social media. And a lot of people may not even have awareness of it. So I think what David really did here was to help educate us about the massive public health crisis that air quality can inflict on people around the world. And I'm really thankful for that. I think that was very eye-opening here on the podcast. Again, David shared the website that you can go to clarity.io. That's clarity, C-L-A-R-I-T-Y.io. If you want to see more about the Clarity movement, what they're doing, and these amazing detection systems that they can get out there with, again, these relatively small and inexpensive units that accurately measure dangerous particles and help you monitor what's going on. I thought it was really interesting, the examples he shared from London, where they have hundreds to maybe thousands of these nodes around the city, and also the second largest school district in the United States, Los Angeles School District, has many of these monitors as well so that they can monitor what's going on for their children's safety. Like, for example, if they should let the kids out for recess or not. That got me thinking, especially for cities, for counties, for a lot of different municipalities around the country, as well as school districts, companies, different organizations, different environmental groups. It may be affordable for you to invest in clarity monitoring to get out there and monitor what's happening in your neighborhoods and communities. Uh, It reminded me too, talking to David about how localized air pollution is. It can be very localized depending on if it's point source pollution, say from an industrial site, and even what we're seeing with wildfire pollution, it can travel a long distance. But if you're not 
if the fire is not upwind from you, you may not be that far from the fire and you may have fine air quality. It seems like it can change a lot over short spaces. And that's why detection and monitoring is so important. I've been checking out online some different websites that show monitoring of air quality around the U.S. One that our listeners may find interesting is just called fire.airnow.gov. That's F-I-R-E.airnow, A-I-R-N-O-W, .gov. That's a real-time map around the country showing air quality all the way from good quality to moderate to unhealthy and hazardous, and it's updated in near real time. It's been really interesting to see where these plumes of pollution are going, and that not only depends on the source of the pollution, but also the wind direction and the wind speed uh, seems to really dictate a lot of these um, spatial pattern. So really interesting stuff. Obviously, the air quality has been in the news. What we've seen in recent years when we get really strong uh, wildfires out there, they often don't just disappear in a short amount of time. If once we get into a pattern where it's very dry and there's prevailing winds going a certain direction, they can last for a long time. And so I have a feeling that we may see a lot of issues and a lot of high profile stories with air quality for the rest of the summer. But it's good to know that David and his team out there are out there helping us to better detect air quality and pollution from not only wildfires, but also urban and industrial sources as well. Hey, I wanted to thank our listeners for making us the number one podcast for natural disasters, according to Feedspot. Really, it's your listenership and people telling people. So many people have said, oh, we shared this podcast with our friends or our family or our coworkers. Again, we're trying to do very relevant stories that are not in the mainstream media, going really beneath the story and behind the story to understand the people that it impacts, what the solutions are for mitigation, and really how it can relate to you. So if you know of anyone impacted by the smoke, by um, wildfire, air pollution, or urban air pollution, please share this podcast with them. I think it could really help them understand the hazard better and help to keep them safer. Wanted to give a shout out as well to our marketing team with CNC Catastrophe and National Claims and the GeoTrek podcast. They do a great job editing and uh, disseminating this content every time we do a new episode. Everyone, thanks for tuning in. This is Dr. Hal. Stay safe. Get out there and enjoy nature. But obviously, uh, keep your situational awareness and stay safe this summer. Watch out if you're in an area with air pollution. Um, like we heard on this podcast, even a point source of a wildfire, we can have pollution for hundreds or even uh, more miles than that. So it can affect a lot of areas. Everyone, get outside, stay safe, and uh, we'll catch you on the next episode of the GeoTrek podcast. This is Dr. Hal signing off.